2: Welcome to the 15th episode of Misconduct. I am Colleen and joining me is Eileen. How are you, Eileen? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing well. We wanted to say
1: thank you to uh, Mary and SuperJump11 for the five-star reviews. We really appreciate the feedback. If you have a moment and are liking the show, please review us on iTunes. Reviews help other people find the show and they help us out as well. And we also have a new Patreon supporter. We wanted to say a huge thank you to Michelle for your generosity in supporting the show.
2: So with that little bit of housekeeping out of the way, let's get started. Jane Batista was a 41-year-old woman living with her two sons in a suburb in Southern California. In January 2003, a body missing the head and hands was found at the bottom of a steep cliff off of Highway 74. One week later, Jane's oldest son confessed to her murder and both boys were taken into custody. What led two sons to kill their mother and could something have been done to prevent it? In 2003,
1: Jane Patista was living in Riverside, California, a hot and dusty suburb outside Los Angeles. She had two sons, one in college and one in high school. She was originally from a small town called Winthrop Harbor in Illinois and was from a well-to-do family. She was described as a pretty young woman, But people who knew her said she was known to be difficult. She was popular and outgoing, but was known to have a temper and was stubborn to the point of being unreasonable. Her mood was known to change from on a dime, from being happy to violently angry, and the mood swings got worse as she got older. She grew up with her mother, father, and one sister named Deborah. Her father, Ted Osborne, was from a well-to-do family, but he chose not to follow in his parents' footsteps and opened his own successful construction company. His job allowed his wife, Jane's mother, Nellie, to be a stay-at-home mom. Her mother was known to be a serious woman who placed a lot of importance into appearances. She was extremely organized, and she ran her household uh, like a tight-run ship. They were never subject of town gossip. People who knew the family described her as a good but strict mother.
2: Her classmates also remarked that she did not share much about her personal life and never seemed to be very trusting, She enjoyed giving her friends advice, but they all seemed to know very little about her own life. One of her friends said she almost seemed paranoid like she was constantly looking over her shoulder. She met her friend Joyce in the 10th grade and they remained friends until adulthood. Jane was a very good student and she was known for her academic achievements. She actually graduated high school a year early and then enrolled in the University of Wisconsin Parkside in 1979. This is about an hour or so from her hometown. Soon after her enrollment, her academic performance started to decline. Despite her attendance record in high school, in college she rarely went to class. She took breaks from school, attending off and on for almost 10 years, ultimately never earning a degree. Jane's relationship with her mother was always strained. Nellie favored Jane's sister Deborah, and Jane resented her for it. Their relationship often boiled over. Uh, Once Jane asked to borrow Nellie's car and was told no. This sent Jane into a frenzy and she screamed so loud for so long that it actually scared Nellie. Jane ended up punching Nellie to the point that she ended up in the hospital and Nellie refused to call the police on Jane because she didn't want to get the police involved and she didn't want to be the subject of the neighborhood gossip.
1: Family members cite this as one of the first moments they realized that something was happening to Jane. That her mood swings that were once hard to understand, were becoming a problem, and not just for Jane. Her increasingly bad temper was pushing people away, which plays a big role in this story.
2: When Jane was in college, she met and married a man named Armando Batista. Armando was an immigrant who moved to the U.S. with his sister. Uh, They came to the United States in search of better opportunities, and Armando found work as an electrician. He could always find work when he needed it, however, he was often low or out of money. Their relationship was a whirlwind, but their families did not approve. His family felt that she was a snobby girl from a rich family who felt like she was better than everybody else, but they tolerated her because their son loved her. Her family felt that she was being rebellious, and because of other compounding issues, they distanced themselves from her at this time.
1: Armando and Jane's relationship was one of high highs and low lows. They often argued, and it progressively got worse as time went on. Money issues plagued their relationship from the beginning, but still they stayed together. In 1982, eight months into the relationship, she found herself pregnant. She gave birth to a son in 1982 named Jason Victor Batista. Armando and Jane tried to reconcile for the sake of their family, but their problems persisted. Less than a year after Jason was born, Jane packed herself and her child up and moved into another apartment. Even though she had left Armando, she was not back in contact with her family, and they weren't supporting her in any way because she was on public assistance that helped pay for her rent. When Armando realized Jane had left him, he tried to reconcile with her repeatedly. This was to no avail because Jane finally told him they would not
2: be getting back together and he should just stop trying. Jane had no help from friends and family who had distanced themselves from her much earlier. Her friend Joyce got a call from her for the first time in years shortly after she left Armando, because Jane needed somebody to watch Jason during the day, and Joyce had just had a kid herself. Joyce only watched Jason a couple of times because uh, one time Jason developed a diaper rash while in her care. When Jane found out, she cut off contact with Joyce for over a year, and she never watched Jason again. Within a year of Jane telling Armando it was over for good, he committed suicide, saying he could not live without Jane or their son. Sad. Jane continued to support herself with checks from the state and checks from her grandmother. Because his father had passed away, Jason received social security checks from the state until he was 18.
1: Armando's family did not like Jane at all. In fact, they felt she was in part to blame for his death. They believed that Jane was what sent Armando over the edge to suicide. Even though they did not like her, they invited her to holidays and family dinners in an attempt to stay close with Jason. While attending these dinners, she met another family friend named Jose Montejo. Montejo was an immigrant who had recently moved to the United States from Belize. Montejo's mother and Armando's family urged him to stay away from her, but in 1986, they were in a serious relationship. He had moved into her house and was like
2: a father to Jason. Jane's mental illness can be traced back to her youth, but it really took a turn for the worse in her 20s. Jose said that their relationship... You know, she could be so great and so fun, and she was really generous and very caring, but then she would completely turn and become a different person. Jose initially wanted to marry her, but Jane was reluctant because that meant that her benefits from the state would stop because she would have to report his income as part of the household income. Soon, though, Jose would be the one putting a hold on marriage due to her mood swings. He described her personality as either great or a terror. Jose wasn't sure what set off her moods or rampages, but suspected it had to do with when he would spend time with Jason. Jose treated him like his own, and Jane would say things like, "You know, what are you even doing? He's not your son. And this would cause a fight. Jose became to believe that she resented Armando and her son, who was part of Armando. No one was to ever mention Armando's name Because it would set Jane off into an angry tirade against them. And Jane was noticeably not affectionate towards Jason. But Jason was well cared for in other regards. Like he was always fed and he was always clean. She just wasn't motherly towards him.
1: Yeah. And Jason, I think that made Jason a very anxious and nervous child. Uh, He was a bedwetter, which is common in young kids. But if Jane found out he had wet the bed during the night, she would beat him. Jose also described a situation from when Jason was three, and Jane caught him touching himself, like most kids do. Jane whipped him and tied his hands up and left him in the corner for over an hour. It's just horrible. Jose came from an abusive household and often butted heads with Jane over her treatment of Jason. This caused their relationship to further deteriorate, deteriorate and would often get into screaming matches, By his own admission, Jose had a bad temper of his own. Finally, Jose decided it was time to end the relationship, and he tried to leave Jane. She then told him that she was pregnant, and he decided to stay with her for the sake of their child. He asked her to marry him again, and this time she said yes.
2: Matthew Montejo was born July fourth, 1987, and Jose hoped it would be a sign of good things to come. Jane was a doting mother to Matt in every way. Uh, but in a way that she never really was with Jason, who was five at this time. He was still wetting the bed and either being beat or ignored by his mother. Sad. He was also becoming fearful of Jane. In another incident described by Jose, five-year-old Jason accidentally knocked over a glass of milk. And when Jane saw, she spanked him so furiously that once he finally got free of her, Jason hid in his room for the rest of the day. Jose tried to address their relationship with Jason again, but Jane was not receptive to the conversation. In addition to her anger issues, Jane was also very secretive and sometimes paranoid. Jose said he realized he didn't know very much about her, he didn't know anything about her family, he didn't know where her money came from, and knew basically nothing about her job or schoolwork. He only met her parents a total of three times the entire time they were together.
1: One day, Jane decided to let her guard down, and she told Jose a story that shocked him. She showed Jose a letter from Armando saying he planned to buy a gun to kill himself. She then said he came to her work and called her outside. She met him in, the, in his car with Jason, and he killed himself in front of both of them while they were sitting in his car, like right in front of them. So this contradicts what the police were told, that she happened to find him in the parking lot. Uh, outside her work some hours later she said she was scared and panicked and lied to the police jose believed this was part of the reason why she harbored so much anger towards armando and jason
2: jose and jane's relationship was not a functional one kind of as we've talked about most of the time they were arguing about jane's treatment of jason money or her mood swings when jane would get mad at someone if they didn't back down in the argument it would usually escalate there were a few instances of this happening between Jose and Jane that ended up becoming physical. Once after Jane came back from her parents' house, she was visibly upset. She became even more upset, recounting the events of the day to Jose. And by the end of her story, she was screaming and crying at him. She went to go pick up then six month old Matthew and she held him up. And for whatever reason, she dropped him and walked away as he fell to the ground. Jose grabbed her by the arm and slapped her and told her that she was never to do that again and that he wouldn't let her treat Matt the way that she treated Jason. He left the room to cool off knowing he'd gone too far and she followed him into the kitchen and grabbed a knife and brandished it at him saying that he wasn't going to leave her all alone like Armando did. They got into another screaming match and the neighbors called the cops and Jose was arrested. Jane immediately petitioned to have the charges dropped and a judge granted the order. Even though she helped get the charges dropped, he still moved out of the house. However, it wasn't long before he moved back in with her.
1: After this incident, Jane said she needed to get away to clear her head and work on the relationship. So the family went on a two-week vacation to Florida. Jane ended up not wanting to go home, and the two-week vacation turned into a three-month-long stay. The whole time, Jose would ask Jane about money, and she would tell him not to worry about it, that she had it taken care of. Because she was so secretive about money and everything, he just believed her. He eventually convinced her to return home, and he was able to um, get the job back that he had lost due to his prolonged absence. Jose was hopeful that their relationship would improve, but as soon as they got home, they fell back into their old routine of constantly arguing. When Jane said she wanted to make a permanent move, Jose agreed. Jane decided to move the family to San Diego, California. They had no friends or family or ties in the area, but Jane seemed to prefer it that way. She packed the, fa- uh, the car and stopped by her parents' house and on the way out of town to let them know the family was moving. The goodbye was cold, though. No tears, no pleasantries were exchanged. When Jane told her parents the family was moving, Nellie simply replied, Okay. <laughs> Jane spent a good portion of that drive from Illinois to California in a terrible mood. After that little interaction with her parents, um, but seemed to improve once they arrived uh, to their destination.
2: The family settled in a suburb about 30 miles north of San Diego called San Marcos. At first, the family was better than they'd been in years, but Jane's mental health soon began to take a turn for the worse. She became extremely concerned with what the family was eating and put them on a diet of mostly uncooked vegetables She also started to become openly hateful of other races and her treatment of Jason got worse as well. He became even more withdrawn. So when he was enrolled in school, he quickly became the target of bullies. Jose and Jane's relationship finally ended when she started accusing him of cheating. When she didn't find evidence, she started making up numbers that she said she found in his jacket pocket and would yell at him about it for hours once she did actually find a number in his jacket pocket, it was the number of a male coworker he had become friends with. And so when she called the number, the coworker's wife answered. And hearing a woman's voice on the other end of the phone sent Jane over the edge. She grabbed a knife from the kitchen and stabbed all of Jose's clothing to shreds. Oh my gosh. She then told Jose that she was going to call the police and tell them that he was sexually abusing the boys. At this point, Jose was, I think, mentally kind of over it and, mm. and done fighting, and he decided to leave this time for good. He relocated to the nearby town of Escondido. After the breakup, Jane would use Matt as a way to check in on Jose to make sure he wasn't dating anyone new. One time, she came to the house unannounced and saw another woman leaving. She let the woman go without incident, but then burst into the house to confront him and got into an argument with Jose. The argument quickly turned physical, with Jose punching her twice in front of the boys. A couple of days later, the Escondido police called him, saying that they needed him to come to the station for questioning. Jane accused him of beating and attempting to rape her, and the police showed him pictures that they had taken of her that showed her with bruising all over her face and upper body. However, Jose maintained he only hit her twice, and I mean, that's not okay, but it quickly turned into a, a he-shit, he-said, she-said situation.
1: Yeah. I mean, that kind of made me wonder, like, did she bruise herself? I mean, if we're believing what Ho- Jose said. But, again, it's never okay to hit anybody ever, I think. But Oh, no. Yeah. But um, I wonder, you know.
2: Yeah. He, he says he never, he never really knew how she got all of those bruises because, again, he maintained the whole time that he only hit her twice. So it's one of those situations where someone's not telling the truth. They just don't know who. Right.
1: Well, Jose ended up in jail. And uh, he would not see his son again until he saw a news report that he had been arrested for murder. After Jose went to jail, Jane relocated to a bigger house supported by her grandma. With Jose gone, the only people who directly witnessed what went on in the house were Jane and the boys. Neighbors remember her as someone who kept to herself and was intensely private. During this period of time, she dated a string of men and often went out all night uh, or out of town to Vegas. She had her boyfriend support her and pay her rent. Not many people knew her well, but plenty of people knew of her as she was a huge topic of gossip in the neighborhood. Not much is known about who took care of the boys during this time, and they say they were left alone. By this time, Jason was 10 and Jane would tell him, you're the man of the house, so you need to take care of Matthew. Jane abandoned her strange diet habits and let Jason handle feeding the family. Neighbors saw her taking her temper out on Jason, screaming at him or hitting him just like Jose did. She would lock him outside for hours and not let him back in the house. Despite witnessing this, no one ever called the cops or c p s although in hindsight, they acknowledged that the kids were at a minimum psychologically
2: abused, but nobody did nobody called c p s or anything no, they would end up calling the cops later, but not due to the treatment like the treatment they saw, how they saw Jane treating the boys mm-hmm. um in the summer of nineteen ninety five her mental health took another down sharp downturn. She drove her sons to Vegas, and they overall had a really good time. Towards the end of the trip, they were watching TV in the hotel, and Duncan Sheik was on screen performing his song, Barely Breathing. Jane was transfixed by the performance, and then pulled Jason aside because she said she had to tell him a secret. She said she met Duncan in a bar years ago, and he had stolen all of her ideas and turned them into songs. She said she made a fuss over the stolen songs, and now Duncan Sheik was trying to kill her because of it. Jason didn't know what to do, so he just ignored her. But over the next few months, she became obsessed with getting into contact with Duncan Sheik. She, convinced, she was convinced music industry executives were spying on her. She stopped using cell phones and took her son's phone away so they couldn't be tracked. She said she didn't want any money from him, but she just needed to convince him not to kill her. She bought all of his music and listened to it obsessively. She eventually found out who his management firm was and tried repeatedly to get into contact with him. She left messages saying she was an old friend who was just trying to reconnect. And the call started in 1995. You know, the receptionist answered the phone, asked Duncan, hey, do you know who this girl is? And Mm. he said no, so they just screened the calls, but they came in over a period of months. Multiple calls came in. And they just started to ignore the messages after the family
1: came back from their trip jane became increasingly racist against mexican and jewish people she claimed she was being stalked by mexicans and started calling the police claiming they were uh there were stalkers hiding in her yard and on her roof she called so often the police actually just stopped coming Eventually, Jane decided that one of her neighbors was hiring people to spy on her under the guise of doing yard work. She called the police on her neighbor, claiming that the neighbor was employing illegal immigrants that were doing her yard work, then stalking Jane after they were done. When Jane would call the police, um, they would come and they would joke with the neighbor to appease her, but ultimately nothing was done. Jane ended up becoming the neighborhood joke who threw tennis balls at a roof at 1 a.m. to try to make the stalkers go away. Still, no one ever called social services to check on Jason and Matt.
2: Despite her behavior, there was one neighbor who reached out to her and had a daughter who was about the same age as Jason, and she invited Jane and the boys to go on a ski trip with them to Big Bear Mountain, which is about two and a half hours northeast. The trip did not go well, jane constantly ridiculed jason in front of everyone and it made just everybody really uncomfortable she would laugh at him for falling when they were skiing and he was already kind of an awkward kid he was really tall i guess and was just hadn't really like grown into his his frame yet Mm -hmm. but so he'd make she would make fun of jason and then go out of her way to praise matt who was a little bit more athletic sad everyone like i said was really uncomfortable with her treatment and couldn't really really couldn't wait for the trip to end when it did finally end and they came back home the neighbor cut off contact with jane and didn't speak to her again after the trip jane decided that the place they were living in was no longer safe and this is when they started to move around constantly they didn't stay in any apartment or motel for too long she also didn't give out her phone number to anybody and in the rare event that she did she changed her number so often she was really hard to get a hold of hmm She did allow Matt to play ice hockey, but that didn't last long because she was difficult. You know, she refused to provide a birth certificate for him, and Matt was actually eventually thrown off the team because of Jane's erratic disruptive behavior practices. She would go after the coaches. She would go after other parents Mm -hmm. to the point that they had to remove Matt to get rid of Jane.
1: So sad. Jane would see her family in Illinois – for the last time at christmas in 1999 she went back to visit her aging grandparents during her visit she was in the middle of a full paranoid episode her parents said they saw how far gone her mental state had become but they did not seek any psychiatric treatment for her or anything instead they got into an argument her parents let her leave with the boys they would not see them again until the boys were arrested By 2000, Jane and the boys were living a completely transient lifestyle because Jane needed to be, quote-unquote, on the run so no one could track them. Despite this unstable living situation, Jason managed to graduate high school one year early. He had always done well He enrolled in a nearby, uh, in nearby Cal State San Bernardino and held down a part-time job. His boss said he was an extremely hard worker and a good employee. However, his co-workers said that he could be a bit of a jerk and thought he was better than them. In 2001, Jason told his mom and brother that he needed to move out and get an apartment. Their constant moving was taking a toll on his schoolwork and prevented him from having a social life. Jane took it poorly and laughed at him, telling him he couldn't do it on his own. When he actually left, Jane showed up at his work, made a scene, and took his car so he couldn't get to school. He bummed rides for a few days, but ended up calling his mom because he needed to shower. And After he returned home, Jane taunted him, calling him a failure. And it's horrible.
2: After moving back in with his mom and brother... Jason convinced his mom to move into an apartment permanently. They looked into places in Redlands and Ranch Cucamonga, which are suburbs near where they had been living. And the Redlands place was out of their range, but they actually ended up being approved. And Jane became really suspicious of this. You know, she was saying, you know, there's no way we would have been approved for that. So ultimately, she was too scared to take the apartment So they ended up losing it. And then right after that, the Rancho Cucamonga Place denied her. And then that sent Jane into a rage. And their plans to get a permanent place almost fell apart. She was basically like, well, if we can't get it approved anywhere, then I guess we just don't need to do this. Mm -hmm. Jason did manage to convince her to look at one more place. And they ended up getting an apartment in Riverside. Uh, The first four months in the new apartment were some of the best the family had ever had. Jane's mental health seemed to be in a good place, Jason was doing well in college, and Matt was attending high school on a regular basis. Jane was never formally diagnosed by a psychiatrist, and as far as anyone knew, she had never really looked into getting any help. People who knew her when she was younger said she always seemed a little bit off. And with some mental illnesses, such as schizophrenia, they don't fully manifest themselves until the person reaches their mid or late 20s. Sometimes symptoms show up early, but many people do not recognize them, and it is only in hindsight that people realize that there was something wrong. Jane's hot-tempered behavior, paranoia, and distressing personality could all have been precursors to a paranoid schizophrenia diagnosis. If left untreated, paranoid schizophrenia can quickly get out of control and basically hinder one's quality of life. Even though things had been good for months... As Christmas 2002
1: approached, Jane's mental health was in decline. On January thirteenth, two 2003, her mood swings hit a new high and she started in on Jason. Jason had grown up accustomed to letting her rage at him, but this night he didn't. He was tired of always being her punching bag. Jason said they got into an argument that escalated to Jane coming at him with a knife. Then they got into a physical altercation that ended with Jason pinning his mother to the ground, and before he knew it, she was dead. Jason was a fan of the TV show The Sopranos, and he took an idea from a recent episode and dismembered Jane's body in the bathtub. He cut off her head, her hands, so it would be harder to identify her, then he wrapped her in a sleeping bag, and then went to go get Matt. The two boys loaded up the car and started to drive south. While Jason never explicitly told Matt what had happened, Matt never asked either. They drove south to Oceanside, where they lived when they first moved to California. They drove into a housing tract and tried to throw her body, uh, without a head or hands, into a dumpster, but were confronted by a security guard.
2: The security guard told the boys to put the bag down, and Jason told him to fuck off. So they hoisted the bag that they kind of had half in the trash can and hoisted it back out, put it back in the trunk, and drove off. Now, what they didn't realize was that the whole time this was happening, Gene's foot had been hanging out of the bottom of the sleeping bag, and the security guard saw. So he wrote down the license plate number and then called the police, but there was really nothing they could do. They headed back to Riverside, crossing the 74, a highway that connects the beach cities with the Inland 215 Freeway. The 74 is a winding highway, and Jason decided to pull off the side of the road and push her remains off the side of one of the many steep cliffs. He threw her clothes in a dumpster a few towns over and then spent the night deep cleaning the apartment with bleach. Not knowing what to do with her head and hands, he put them in a bag and put that bag in the hall closet of their apartment and told Matt not to go in there. The next morning, a driver on the 74 reported seeing a body at the bottom of one of the cliffs off the side of the highway.
1: The police had no leads as to who the body might belong to. With no hands, head, and no missing persons report that matched the description, the police put out a news report asking for anyone with any information to call the tip line. That security guard who confronted the boys called the tip line when he saw the news report. He gave them the license plate number of the car they were driving, and when the police ran it, Jason and Jane popped up as the registered donors. Police met with the security guard in person and showed him both Jane and Jason's picture. He picked out Jason as one of the boys that he saw. Police tried to reach Jason at his work, but it was his day off. His co-workers told the police to try to find him at school, telling them that Jason had chemistry at 1 p.m. His coworkers didn't think he was in trouble or anything, and the police said they were investigating a missing persons case. So his coworkers were actually feeling bad for him and hoped he would be okay after whatever bad news the police were
2: bound to give him. The police met up with him at school and called him out of class. They took him to the campus police office and told him they were investigating a missing person. They didn't say that they thought that his mother was the dead body found off of Highway 74. They questioned him, saying one of Jane's friends had reported her missing, and Jason said that as far as he knew, she was in the nearby town of Corona with a boyfriend that he had never met. He said that she often left them to stay with boyfriends, leaving Jason responsible for taking care of Matthew, the Bills, and the house. When asked for a description of his mom, Jason gave a completely different description, complete with fake tattoos, in order to confuse the investigation. They told Jason that they would be writing search warrants for the house and car, and then stepped outside. Jason immediately called Matt on his cell phone and told him to leave the apartment and not come back until he told him to. But what he didn't know was that the police had been recording the conversation the whole time, and the call that he just made was caught on tape. When the police asked to search his car, Jason breaks down and confesses and tells them about the murder and the abuse that he and Matt had endured their whole lives. He also wrote an apology to his mom while in custody and seemed really remorseful at the time.
1: Even though Jason said Matt had nothing to do with the crime, except for the cover-up, according to California law, Matt could be held just as responsible. Matt said he didn't call the police out of fear because he never thought Jason would kill Jane, so when he did, he was afraid Jason could kill him too. One week after the murder, the boys were arrested on charges of first-degree murder and conspiracy to commit murder. Relatives immediately came to see the boys, and for the first time, they were getting support from their extended family.
2: The family was initially helpful, but that was only until the retainer bill came from the attorney that they wanted to hire. After balking at the price, they decided that they would just let the two boys hire public defenders Jason's public defender was noticeably overworked, but Matt got a pro bono private practice lawyer. The two waited in jail for over a year for their trials to start.
1: Opening statements in Jason's case went well for the prosecution, but were not as effortless for the defense. The prosecutor was well-liked and charismatic, which played well with the jury. Jason's attorney was not bad, but compared to the prosecution, he was just not as impressive. Classmates, coworkers, and Matt testified against Jason. They said that Jason had said he wanted to bait Jane into attacking him so killing her would look like self-defense. Matt also said that on the night of the murder, Jason never said Jane came at him with a knife, and this contradicted Jason's story and undermined the self-defense theory. Matt also stated that Jason called Jane crazy, which he rarely did because it would set her off.
2: The medical examiner testified that Jane received four blows to the head, three to the body, and that her eye socket bones were shattered. Mm. Her body also showed telltale signs of a strangulation death. It takes about six minutes to die by strangulation, and the prosecution made sure to tell the jury how long Jason would need to hold her neck in order for Jane to die. In exchange for his testimony, the prosecution offered to reduce Matt's charges to accessory after the fact as a juvenile, instead of first-degree murder as an adult. Accessory after the fact carries a maximum of three years, and Matt had already served about two years in prison waiting for his trial to begin. During a recess after Matt testified, Jason and Matt were in holding cells with other inmates, and they were within shouting distance of each other. Matt yelled multiple times to get Jason's attention, and when Jason finally answered, they chatted about Counter-Strike, which is a computer game they both liked, but then Jason abruptly changed the subject. He said, quote, do you know what happens to snitches in here? Do they, meaning the other inmates, know that you're a snitch? And this was all within earshot of everyone else. Wow. Matt's attorney was so angry when the recess was over, they put Matt back on the stand to discuss the incident. And Matt said he was scared to go back to his cell in Gen Pop in the prison. And the prosecution used this incident against Jason basically as a show of his character. Yeah. In addition to testifying for the prosecution, Matt also testified for Jason corroborating the abusive upbringing they both suffered. Nellie testified for Jason, saying that no one ever tried to get Jane help. Instead, they sent a monthly check and ignored the obvious problem. Hmm. Even the prosecution said he wished he could hold Jane's family accountable in some way for her death. Psychiatrists for the defense reviewed the transcripts with Jane's family and friends and said that they believed she was suffering from paranoid schizophrenia and narcissistic personality disorder. Narcissistic personality disorder can make people believe they're overly important but underappreciated, and they have a hard time sympathizing with others.
1: They also testified that growing up with a parent suffering from these untreated diseases uh, caused Jason to suffer from PTSD, but overall only an hour of the defense's argument was spent on the psychological analysis of the household. Testimony regarding the effects of childhood childhood abuse was ruled uh, insignificant for a 20 year old by the judge jason insisted that he testify but when he got on the stand he sounded completely rehearsed he like referred to the bedroom that matt went into while he killed jane as the north bedroom you know who said i went to the north bedroom he also said he had a quote-unquote high level of fear he would be killed um, you know I feared for my life kind of those are all just kind of technical and buzz terms like legal and law enforcement use not generally something a civilian would say so to speak his delivery was robotic and seemed to be memorized people who watched the testimony said he seemed cocky even though it was obviously going very badly Jason said that he blacked out for the dismemberment and his memory was foggy on details other than the ones he recited in his testimony The prosecutor went at him hard, throwing his lies in his face. He called out Jason's line by line delivery of his testimony as fake. The prosecution then played his tape confession for the court that gives clear details of what he did that night of the murder. The recording also included more callous moments like when Jason laments losing his favorite pair of pants because it got blood on them and that he would have to cancel plans with friends that night because he was being arrested. This made his testimony on the stand look even more fake and rehearsed and damaged his credibility with the jury.
2: The prosecutor then asked Jason to reenact the struggle he had with his mom the night of the murder with him for the jury. Jason obviously didn't want to do this, but he didn't have a choice. As he stepped out of the witness box, he told his attorney, this is prejudicial and you need to object. His attorney did object, but the judge overruled and the demonstration moved forward. By the end, the prosecutor had a bruise on his forehead and Jason was visibly rattled. Closing arguments took place after nine days of trial. The prosecution said he may have grown up in an abusive household with a mentally ill mother, but that was not reason enough to kill her. They said he was an adult and he had options. The defense said that Jason did not have options because she lunged at him with a knife. The jury took a long time to deliberate. Some of the jury members had family members with schizophrenia, so this case was really personal for them. Three days later, the vote came down to 11 to 1 for guilty on first-degree murder, with one holdout who would only agree to second-degree murder, nothing more, nothing less. At the end of day three, the vote changed and the verdict was in. Jason walked in and smiled at his uncle who gave him a thumbs up because three days is a long time to deliberate Mm -hmm. for a jury. If they're, you know, presented a case and so ready to convict, it doesn't normally take that long. So the defense was likely hopeful about the verdict. But on February 4th, 2005, Jason was convicted of first degree murder. He had expected second degree murder at the most, but was really hoping for manslaughter. So the verdict was a shock to him. One of the jurors gave a statement to reporters saying that as bad as they felt for Jason, they simply had no way out based on the facts of the crime.
1: Matt received a 749-day sentence for accessory after the fact in 2005. He received time served for the time he had already spent in prison before the trial and was released that day. He handed a card to the prosecutor that said, thank you for giving me a second chance at life. Matt wants to live with his dad, Jose. Jose had been consistently visiting the boys in prison as soon as they were arrested. Jose and Matt now run a DJ business where they perform at weddings and parties.
2: April 8, 2005, Jason was sentenced. He filed a motion before the hearing to fire his attorney and get a new one. He said his attorney had failed to produce enough evidence towards a child abuse angle during trial. He also said that he suffered from battered child syndrome, which is something similar to battered women's syndrome, that made him believe that murder was the only way out of his situation. Even though his lawyer tried to introduce this angle, it was ruled insignificant by the judge because Jason was not a child and his lawyer didn't argue against that ruling. So the whole issue was kind of dropped. Mm -hmm. Jason said that that angle should have been pursued more aggressively and he even had a female juror testify that because they weren't given evidence of battered child syndrome to consider during deliberation, she felt that she was not given all the pertinent information she needed. She said had she known about that, she would have changed her vote to a lesser charge because it would have given her insight into what was in Jason's head the night of the murder. Despite this testimony, the judge dismissed the motion and proceeded to sentencing jason's family was not in attendance the judge said
1: that the case reeked of premeditation and he lacked remorse citing that jason did not even address the court and apologize which is common for defendants about to be sentenced jason then hastily addressed the court and apologized for his actions in a short awkward statement he essentially apologized for his actions and then said he did not agree with the verdict he ended the statement by saying he did not agree quote he submits it seemed to actually annoy the judge even more seeing as all the defendants before him read lengthy pre-written statements of remorse jason was sentenced to 25 years to life for first-degree murder he is currently incarcerated at Avenal state prison his earliest potential release date is january 2028
2: so as far as how i feel about the verdict I see how the jury came up with the verdict they did. Overall, I think that Jason would be better benefited by receiving psychological treatment because you can't deny that their upbringing was extremely difficult. Right. Yeah. Mental illness is such a complicated and misunderstood issue in our society. And I think both Jane and her sons were failed on multiple levels.
1: I totally agree. I think that Jason does suffer probably from some form of PTSD and I... I could not imagine growing up in that environment. Um, I think he snapped, not surprisingly, in a sense. I mean, it's kind of premeditated, but I don't know. I think in a sense he kind of snapped. And But with that, it's murder, and, you know, he, he is guilty of that, right? So I, I, I agree with you that I think he would,
2: would be better off with some sort of psychological treatment and, Yeah, yeah. As far as the verdict being fair, I guess based on the evidence presented at trial, the verdict is fair. You know, they have to consider only the evidence that they're presented. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we know all this information about his, you know, his childhood and the conditions that he lived in growing up. But they weren't really allowed to consider so much of that. Right. So, yeah, I guess based on the I, I do think that the jury did what they could with what they had, you know. Mm hmm. But I am really happy with Matt's sentence. You know, I think he was given a second chance and he was like 17 at the time. So yeah. he was really able to start his life over. I just really hope that he's doing okay.
1: I know, me too. And I, you know, again, I agree with you. I I think if I was probably sitting in the jury box with the information that, it, you know, we could tell that they were given, um, you know, I think it, it was a fair verdict. Because um, in the end, like, here's the thing. I mean... I see why like they had that one hold out, you know, especially if they even heard like a they heard a glimmer of the fact of how he grew up. I know they didn't hear as much, but um he did dismember her body mm-hmm. and I think as a jury and, and, and there could be many reasons, you know, don't get me wrong that people but in the end, like if we were just sort of talking on a, he did dismember a body and, and cleaned up the evidence and tried to get rid of it. So I could see why they're like, Yeah, first degree. Um you know, there could be many reasons why somebody does that but in the end it's kind of like you're cleaning up like the scene this is premeditated but um so I just see why they they went with the first degree but I am happy with Matt sentence as well I think he was yeah a kid and you know gosh I don't know you just realized your brother killed your mom Uh, you know I don't know what I would do in that situation so I, I
2: hope he's doing well too and it sounds like he is And then I kind of was like throughout the whole research on this thinking like what could have been done differently? Because I feel like there were so many, yeah, so many opportunities for someone to intervene or some intervention that could have led to a completely different outcome. Mm -hmm. I just wish somebody would have helped Jane get the treatment that she desperately needed. Oh, absolutely. You know, this would be a really different story if somebody had stepped in and helped her or someone had stepped in and called CPS, or, you Mm. know, and I get what the prosecutor meant when he said that he wished he could somehow hold her family responsible. I mean, that might be a little bit of unfair, but Uh, yeah, I I mean, 1999, uh, when they went for Christmas in 1999, that I think was just the tipping point. Right. I don't know how you could let them leave, let her leave with two kids. Right. And it's not
1: like they didn't have the money to pay for it. Right. I mean, to help, them out and if you're not gonna i don't know it's just exactly jane needed I, jane needed treatment when she was a kid it sounds like when she was a kid you know um like you said i think our, our society uh mental illness can be quite misunderstood but she, she should she should have gotten treatment at an early age but you know then you have not only so through the years cops that were constantly called to the house never thought to do a welfare check um but you know I'm not blaming him but it's just like it's just kind of sad that like they kind of had a lot of opportunities between cops coming the parents knowing Jose knowing and the family that she would she would get violent and like you said the, that Christmas and they just they got in an argument and just let them leave with two kids so if you're not going to help Jane you're at least help the kids so especially when things started getting violent that's just my opinion um so I think things could have been done differently and unfortunately they weren't and it's sad. And um, I think that wraps us up for today um, for this episode of Misconduct. Thank you for joining us. Uh, If you have any questions or comments about today's case, head over to our Facebook group or find us on Instagram or Twitter at Misconduct Podcast. We also want to give a huge shout out to the Blank Tapes who do our intro and outro music. You can find them on SoundCloud and give some of their stuff a listen. And like we mentioned in the opening, we just launched our Patreon. We have a bunch of really cool stickers and our mugs just arrived. And we just released our first bonus episode um, on Dorothy Jane Scott. And we release on the 20th of every month. Um, Hopefully going to be doing more, but one for now, one per month. Uh, So you can check out our Patreon site at patreon.com slash misconduct podcast. And thank you again for listening and we will see you next week.